Our story starts the day one of the most famous stories in U.S. history concluded. July 11, 1804, in the early morning hours at Weehawken, New Jersey, the sitting Vice President of the United States, Aaron Burr, faced off with former Treasury Secretary Alexander Hamilton and the most high-profile duel in the history of our country. As many of you musical theater fans know, Burr shot Hamilton right between his ribs, and the majorly influential thinker and founding father died a day and a half later. You probably knew at least part of that story. It's taught in high schools around the country. But what we're going to look at today is a question that is rarely discussed. Whatever happened to Aaron Burr? Burr did not lay low after that notorious morning. The story is so wacky and unbelievable that I'm not even going to spend time talking about Burr's indictment for murder in New York and New Jersey and his eventual acquittal, which did happen. No, today's story is one of the most high-profile treason cases in American history, and one final battle between one of our nation's landmark presidential administrations and a vice president gone rogue. Buckle up, because I promise you do not know where this is heading. Thank you for tuning in to Scattered Through Time, where we delve into some of history's quirkiest, most underappreciated, and exciting tales. I'm your host, John Mayle, and I'm thrilled to bring you all the things you didn't know that you didn't know. After shooting Hamilton, who Burr would describe as his friend until the day he died, the vice president's political aspirations were just as dead as his victim. He was in the midst of running for governor of New York, during which time Hamilton's criticisms pushed Burr to ask for the duel in the first place, and he was soundly defeated by Hamilton-backed candidate Morgan Lewis in the November after the shooting. After the murder charges brought against him were dropped, and after he left the vice presidency in 1805, Burr was at a crossroads and decided that it was time to get out of New York and head for the western frontier, which was just expanded immensely through Jefferson's Louisiana Purchase. It was Burr's intentions behind the move that are shrouded in mystery and led to a controversy for the ages. Burr was aiming to raise an army on the American frontier, and during his journey west, he attempted to recruit as many volunteers as he could. Burr was an experienced military man through his service as a colonel in the Continental Army during the Revolution, but he was no longer a member of the government and he had no authority to raise an army. And while the details on this are still hazy, it's clear that Burr did not intend on assembling the army just to provide security for the Union, but rather to create his own separate Union, completely removed from the still young United States, where he could be the ruler. Burr had a contact, a British foreign minister named Anthony Mary, where he suggested that the newly acquired Louisiana Territory could potentially be persuaded to secede from the Union, and that Burr would be happy to quote, lend his assistance to his majesty's government in any manner in which they may think fit to employ him, particularly in endeavoring to effect a separation of the western part of the United States from that which lies between the Atlantic and the mountains. Later in that letter, Mary said, quote, It is clear Mr. Burr means to endeavor to be the instrument for effecting such a connection. He has told me that the inhabitants of Louisiana prefer having the protection and assistance of Great Britain. Execution of their design is only delayed by the difficulty of obtaining previously an assurance of protection and assistance from some foreign power. This is the first formal mention of Burr's plot in correspondence, and he was asking for a British fleet in the Gulf of Mexico and support in terms of weapons and money. 
Mary received no interest from his colleagues in Britain, and they didn't get involved with the plot. But Burr pushed forward regardless and moved into the next phase of his plan, moving out west. Burr went out west and stated that his official purpose was to take possession of a large plot of land in the Texas territory he had leased from the Spanish government. The lease was real, and the land was Burr's. But what he conveniently forgot to mention was what he was up to on the way to Texas. Burr moved slowly across the country, making stops along the Mississippi and Ohio rivers to recruit supporters for his insurrection. In New Orleans, he met with a group of wealthy businessmen who supported annexing Mexico, which was then called New Spain, into the Union. He worked to build up a fairly impressive coalition of former politicians and frontiersmen who believed in his cause and wanted their own independent nation. A significant figure that allied himself with Burr was the wealthy Irishman Harman Blennerhassett, who offered up an island he owned in the Ohio River in modern-day West Virginia, where Burr could use as a headquarters in modern-day West Virginia, which Burr could use as a headquarters to launch operations from and a storage space for supplies. But the most important supporter of Burr's vision by far was General James Wilkinson, the top-ranked military man in the entire country at the time. Wilkinson commanded troops at the frontier and could provide men and weapons for the cause. Burr believed that Wilkinson would be key to any of his operations. It should be noted at this point that Byrd didn't confirm his full scheme to any of these allies because he wanted to operate in secrecy. But privately, Burr envisioned himself as the supreme emperor of the new nation in the West that he was seeking to establish. Because he wasn't forthcoming, rumors started to pop up back east of what he may be up to. Stories of a possible Burr plot involving the British Navy abounded in newspapers in major cities like New York and Philadelphia, and the intrigue surrounding the Founding Father began to surge. Even with all of this drama surrounding him, Burr pressed forward with his mission and made a second trip out west to evaluate the potential for conquering new lands. By August of 1806, he had reached the home of Blennerhassett, and he was ready to alert Wilkinson that the conquest was underway. Burr dictated these words to his secretary, Willie, who converted the language to cipher, an old code used to pass sensitive information. It reads, Yours postmark 13th May is received. I have obtained funds and have actually commenced the enterprise. Detachments from different points under different pretenses will rendezvous on the Ohio, 1st November. Everything internal and external favors views. Protection of England is secured. Truxton has gone to Jamaica to arrange with the Admiral on that station and will meet at the Mississippi. England, Navy of the United States are ready to join and final orders are given to my friends and followers. It will be a host of choice spirits. Wilkinson shall be second to Burr only. Wilkinson shall dictate the rank and promotion of his officers. Burr will proceed Westwood 1st August, never to return. With him go his daughter. The husband will follow in October with a corps of worthies. It's clear from this letter that Burr had no idea what was actually going on with his plot, or he was just lying. He mentioned that the protection of England is secured, even though Mary told him he couldn't get any support for the plan from overseas. He talks about having a, quote, core of worthies, but he only had visited towns along the frontier to share his idea, and he had no clear headcount for how many people would participate. 
Also, he's assuming that Wilkinson, the highest ranking man in the entire U.S. Army, will be subservient to him. This lack of organization would plague Burr right away. He left from Pittsburgh on August 1st, but his plan that he shared with Wilkinson was very ambitious. Later on in that same ciphered letter, Burr dictated, Burr guarantees the result with his life and honor, the lives, the honor, and the fortunes of hundreds, the best blood of our country. Burr's plan of operations is to move rapidly from the falls on the 15th of November, with the first 500 or 1,000 men in light boats now constructing for that purpose to be at Natchez between the 5th and 15th of December, then to meet Wilkinson, then to determine whether it will be expedient in the first instance to seize on or pass by Baton Rouge. On receipt of this, send Burr an answer. Draw on Burr for all expenses. The people of the country to which we are going are prepared to receive us. Their agents now with Burr say that if we will protect their religion and will not subject them to a foreign power, that in three weeks all will be settled. What Burr must not have known at this point was that his greatest ally was no longer in his corner. Wilkinson had turned on Burr because he couldn't imagine the plan working and he wanted to preserve his career and his legacy. He told Jefferson what Burr was planning. Now we'll pause here for a second to clear something up. There were no running mates on tickets showing a unified front back in the early 1800s like we've become so accustomed to. Burr and Jefferson never got along, even when they were serving together. In fact, Jefferson and Burr were adversaries in the 1800 presidential election, and the race was incredibly close. Back in those times, each member of the House of Representatives cast two electoral votes. Whoever received the most electoral votes won the presidency, and whoever received the second most was made vice president. Even though Burr and Jefferson were both Democratic Republicans, they weren't particularly good friends and they vehemently disagreed on many of the most important issues of the day. Each man received 73 electoral votes, meaning the election was deadlocked. It took 36 special ballots for the outgoing House of Representatives to pick a winner between Jefferson and Burr, and it was largely thanks to the influence of Hamilton that a few Federalist representatives moved their support to Jefferson, ushering him into the White House. Okay, back to 1806. Given all of that background and their contentious history, it should come as no surprise that Jefferson took Burr's perceived disloyalty very seriously. The first sign that Burr was in trouble came in December of 1806, when the notoriously hot-tempered Jefferson authorized Robert Smith, the Secretary of the Navy, to send this letter to Captain John Shaw, the commanding naval officer in New Orleans. It reads, Sir, a military expedition formed on the western waters by Colonel Burr will soon proceed down the Mississippi, and by the time you receive this letter will probably be near New Orleans. You will, by all the means in your power, aid the army and militia in suppressing this enterprise. You will, with your boats, take the best position to intercept and to take, and if necessary, to destroy the boats descending under the command of Colonel Burr, or of any person holding an appointment under him. There is great reliance on your vigilance and exertions. I have the honor to be, sir, your most obedient. Smith. This was only the beginning for Burr. Soon after that letter, Burr's island headquarters was raided by federal authorities while he was away, and the government's strong message was beginning to deter many of Burr's ardent supporters. 
Burr himself even faced treason charges in Kentucky, but they were dropped for a lack of evidence. Regardless, things were not looking up for the disgraced founding father. And they would only get worse from there. When Burr finally gathered up the force he had spent a fortune and valuable time recruiting, fewer than 100 men had answered the call. Wilkinson was nowhere to be found, and it was apparent that the colonel would be alone in his endeavor. Regardless, Burr pushed forward with his ragtag group and loaded up into boats in an attempt to take New Orleans. In the middle of that voyage from West Virginia down south, Burr learned of Wilkinson's betrayal and Jefferson's mission to bring him to justice. The mission was over before it truly began, or before anyone could learn exactly what Burr wanted to do. Jefferson, however, was willing to speculate. He gave a lengthy, fiery address to Congress on January 22, 1807, where he used Burr as a poster child for the fragility of the security of the new Union and why Americans need to unite against this sort of planned insurrection. Jefferson said, Sometime in the latter part of September, I received intimations that designs were in agitation in the Western country, unlawful and unfriendly to the peace of the Union, and that the prime mover in these was Aaron Burr, heretofore distinguished by the favor of his country. The grounds of these intimations being inconclusive, the objects uncertain, and the fidelity of that country known to be firm, the only measure taken was to urge the informants to use their best endeavors to get further insight into the designs and proceedings of these suspected persons and to communicate them to me. By a letter received from that officer on the 25th of November, but dated October 21st, we learned that a confidential agent of Aaron Burr had been deputed to him, with communications partly written in cipher and partly oral, explaining his designs, exaggerating his resources, and making such offers of emolument and command to engage him in the army in his unlawful enterprise, as he had flattered himself would be successful. The general, with the honor of a soldier and fidelity of a good citizen, immediately dispatched a trusty officer to me with information of what had passed proceeding to establish such an understanding that the Spanish commandant on the Sabine has permitted him to withdraw his force across the Mississippi and to enter on measures for opposing the projected enterprise. So to summarize that speech, Jefferson was totally on to what Burr was doing, and he made it his mission to embarrass the former vice president and destroy whatever plot he was working on. Burr immediately fled his expedition and took refuge near what is now Mobile, Alabama, where he was discovered by federal troops in February of 1807, and by March he had been brought to Richmond, Virginia, to face trial on the charge of treason, which was punishable by death. The United States vs. Burr was America's first super trial. It attracted the interest of citizens from every corner of the largely regional country. In Richmond, Chief Justice of the Supreme Court John Marshall made the trip from Washington to preside. Prosecutors had plenty of witnesses against Burr, and the trial dragged on for months. One of the most interesting moments in the trial was when Burr and his legal team attempted to subpoena documents from Jefferson, some of which were provided, but others were kept from the court for the, quote, well-being and security of the country. Burr's legal defense, bolstered by a dream legal team that featured two former U.S. Attorneys General, was centered around the idea that treason was defined very specifically in the Constitution as an overt act against the United States, and there was no evidence that Burr performed such an act, 
using the lease with Spain for the land in Texas as evidence, as well as the proof that Wilkinson forged certain parts of the cipher letter. Also, Burr claimed that he was seeking to colonize land in Louisiana, not mount a revolution and look for western states to secede or engage in a war with Mexico. When Chief Justice Marshall agreed with Burr's team on the narrow definition of overt act, the prosecution never stood a chance. The plot had been destroyed and Burr disgraced, but he would not face the gallows. He was acquitted by the jury in October of 1807. Now you'd think someone like Burr, who had already survived not one, but two of the greatest scandals in American history, would lay low for a while. After all, he was one of the most hated men in America when his trial ended, and once he realized his political future was ruined, he did so moving to London and living in a sort of self-inflicted exile. Even while overseas, Burr sought funding for a potential colonization of Mexico, but he was brushed off on every occasion. He moved back to America in 1812, married for a second time at the age of 77, and lived in obscurity as a practicing attorney until 1836, where he passed away at the age of 80, leaving behind the messiest and most cartoon-like legacy of any of the founding fathers. Well, thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Uh, you can follow us on Twitter at through podcast. We are on Facebook and you can follow us on Instagram and TikTok at scattered through time. All one word that is at scattered through time. All one word. And if you want to suggest a story that you'd like to hear covered on uh, an episode of scattered through time, please just reach out and let me know. And I will be happy to do that. Thank you so much.